0: Um, We're looking at Daniel chapter 2 and um, uh, I hope you didn't find the pause between the two readings too distracting while you were singing. Uh, The aim was obviously it's a very long chapter so to try and break it up but also um, one of the wonderful things about the Bible is as well as bringing God's truth to us it's also wonderfully well written and it's just wonderful the way the writer keeps you sort of hanging on the edge of your seat what is in the stream and what is in the stream and you never really know until the very very end and so I thought putting the pause in there would uh, bring that out. But that idea of putting the dream to the end is not just a bit of storytelling. It's also uh, making a point that actually the content of the dream is not the most important thing, um, as we'll see. Um, so, if it's not too personal a question to ask, um, I wonder what you worry about. Um, it is extraordinary sometimes the things that we worry about and what makes us worry about them. Uh, if I'm being brutally honest and a slightly bizarre confession, uh, I've been recently wondering about when I go to the loo uh, for number two. Um, uh, that's not relevant to that Um, let me explain Um, basically the reason is that I'm at Wycliffe Hall studying and one of my friends has recently been diagnosed with bowel cancer now it is good that at Wycliffe we're a Christian family we can support each other we can pray for each other Um, we can rally around him but one of the things that has happened as he has been very very honest telling us about what's been going on in his life is that actually I think all of us have started to become a bit more self-aware Now, uh, I think that my uh, checking of my movements um, probably just illustrates the fact that when we hear about suffering, actually our self-preservation instinct kicks in. And uh, what we worry about starts to sort of close in on us, away from what's out there and more into our own immediate circumstances. And I think that tendency is pretty obvious in what we worry about. So, as I said earlier, I wonder what gets you worrying. Maybe it's work-related. So, for the 30 seconds as you're walking into the office front door... It's, oh no, can I really bear another day with that person? Maybe it's a bit, sort of, uh, got a slightly longer view. Maybe it's all about, I wonder whether this job is going anywhere. Will it pay the bills? Will I be able to pay this month's rent? Um, Maybe as a parent, you've got those very natural worries. Uh, Will my little boy or girl have a good day at school? Do the teachers know that he or she is being picked on? Are they going to do anything about it? Maybe you've got adolescents, and they've stopped talking to you. Um, and you're wondering what's going on in their lives. Maybe it's our health. So maybe, I guess, for some of our more senior states, states, saints here, uh, the question might be, well, you know, uh, my back's not as good as it used to be, my memory's starting to go a bit, I wonder what's next. And if you're like me and single in your 20s and 30s, then the question is quite often, will I ever get married? Um, but those are just the sort of things that concern us. Um, before we then start looking at the world around us, and worries real. Um, now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to be concerned about any of those things. Um, nonetheless, for those of us that do worry about those things, Daniel 2 uh, speaks into that situation with some helpful teaching. But, um, and it's a big but, it's not quite as directly addressed as you might think. So I don't know if you've ever had one of those conversations where you're not quite on the same wavelength as the person that you're talking to. Um, I remember one when I was about 15. Uh, it was my mum, my dad and myself around the kitchen table. And um, I think I asked my mum something like, uh, what time are we going to the cinema tonight? And my mum thought for a moment, looked at me dead straight and said with absolute certainty, chocolate cake. Um, At which point my dad and I paused, looked at each other and then burst into howls of laughter. Um, It really wasn't the answer I was looking for. Um... To this day, despite much mockery, she's never quite confessed what was going through her mind, but she does say that she was definitely trying to answer my question. The reason why I say that um, is that actually, if you think about our worries today, the answer that Daniel 2 gives today may sound a bit like chocolate cake, um, but actually it's not. The fact that Daniel 2 doesn't meet we well at, right, the fact that it doesn't speak straight into our concerns as we see them, is actually part of its teaching. But that's enough of an intro. Uh, Let's get into the passage. Uh, So it seems that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was thinking about the future. And in that state, he has a dream. Um, Clearly, though, this isn't an ordinary dream. Um, I don't know what Babylonian tyrants, who are slightly mentally unstable, do dream about normally. But actually, uh, maybe it's hanging gardens or something. But Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, uh, and he knows it's important. He knows it means something. He wants to know what it means. He wants it interpreted correctly. And so in verse 1 we read, in the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers. Now it was perfectly common in those days for kings to have fortune tellers whose services they call on as and when they needed them. But one of the problems with having cronies is basically they tell you what you want to hear. So Nebuchadnezzar decides that these guys have actually got to prove themselves. They've actually got to tell him what the dream is in the first place rather than just prattling out with the usual rubbish. Now, presumably, Nebuchadnezzar being king and all that was a fairly persuasive individual, but nonetheless, he does offer them both the carrot and the stick. So he says to them, uh, there'll be gifts, rewards and great honour in verse 6, if they do what he wants. But in verse 5, there's the stick, and it's quite a big stick. Um, if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces, and your houses turned into piles of rubble. Nice. Um... Now, I suspect that many of us have had unreasonable requests from our bosses, but a few of us will have been asked to do the impossible with the death penalty as the pe- penalty if we failed. Um, but the king's cynicism about human nature and his dangerous tendency to cut his minions down to size, and above all his cold logic, are actually best summed up in verse 9. And he is thoughtful, is Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 9. If you, tell me the dream, if you do not tell me the dream, said Nebuchadnezzar, there's just one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. Well, face with that kind of offer, if you were in that situation, what would you do? Well, I think you probably have to do what the astrologers do, uh, which is come clean, and the astrologers do that in verse 10. The astrologers answered the king, There is not a man on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods and they do not live among men. And those words are actually a most revealing confession. Because it's more than just a matter of saying, oh, human beings have limitations, we can't do everything. It's more than that. It's an admission that idolatry, worshipping anything other than the real God, the God of the Bible, is bankrupt. It's futile, it's pointless. And the lesson that follows from that is that where there are idols in our life, we shouldn't trust them. So point number one, if I can get the thing to work. Idolatry is bankrupt, so don't trust it. At the end of the day, uh, these magicians, astrologers and enchanters weren't just sort of Harry Houdini's or Darren Brown out to make a fast buck in entertainment. They believed that they could genuinely interpret signs, dreams, tell you what was going to happen from some cow's dead liver um, because they worshipped their false gods. So you can imagine some priest of the god Marduk um, who would be there uh, doing his tricks because he reckoned the god Marduk could enable him to interpret the king's dreams. Say so, fair enough, you say. The king might often ask for people to interpret his dreams, and he would go to his favourite little volume, Interpreting Dreams the Marduk Way, in Three Easy Steps. But along comes the king with a different challenge. He says, I don't just want you to interpret the dream. I want you to tell me what the dream actually was. Oh, I haven't got a book on that, says the priest of Marduk. I can't do that. And the ironic question that follows that is, Well, what does that say about the god Marduk, then? You see, to Jewish years, hearing that confession, what the king asks is too difficult. He's basically going to ring off alarm bells in them, and they're going to know immediately, of course it's too difficult, because Marduk's not a god at all. Marduk's not a real god. There's only one god, the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of Daniel, and he does whatever he pleases. So you see, it's rather like the World Cup or um, for the less forty and perhaps more currently the Eurovision Song Contest um, where the reputation of a whole nation depends on just a few people. So the reputation or the reality of the gods of the Middle East getting around that time depended on these few people. You had Marduk's representative, you had Viala Russia, you had Malta, hello Malta. And it's how they perform, these enchanters, these sorcerers, these diviners and astrologers and magicians that will actually determine whether these gods are real or not. And one by one, they all say, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. But the Bible from start to finish, and especially in the book of Daniel, says there's one God. And actually, the rest of the Bible says, and it happened that he did come and live among men. Because we have Jesus Christ, the Word, was God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The lesson about idolatry today, applies to us today because what we worry about is actually quite a good way of diagnosing what our idols are. So either we worry about our idols, our job, our finances, our relationships, or what we sometimes do is when we have concerns that are perfectly justified, our idols are the first thing we go to when we try and fix the problem. And Daniel says to us in both circumstances, to the idols in those days, to the idols in our day, actually, bless you, they're bankrupt. Don't trust them. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we therefore become reckless with our family, with our friends and aspirations and all of those sorts of things. But I, think, I do think it does force us to ask the question, well, what are our idols? What are the idols in our life? Has something become an idol which wasn't beforehand? I mean, after all, idolatry can be subtle, as well as being very, very obvious. And obviously, when we find them, then we should pray to God that when we repent of them, lost my place Um, so let's pray for that Um, often I think one of my idols is my incompetence I think that I can do everything that I need to do and so instead of depending on the grace of God which is there and lavish and generously poured out I look to myself but at the end of the day I can't do everything I'm bankrupt in that sense there's no point in me trusting in me without trusting in God over and above all of that But this negative fact about the emptiness and futility of trusting in idols is really the flip side of a wonderful truth. And that is that there is a real God. There is a God, the living God, the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, who can be trusted. And unlike Marduk who's silenced when you ask him what the king's dream was, he does intervene in the lives of men. And actually, as we face uncertainty about the future, and actually a lot of our worries are about the future, let's face it, we don't need idols, we need the living God. And this passage really brings out two facts about God, that it it really draws to the fore. So if we're facing an uncertain and potentially hostile future, and Daniel and his buddies were facing dismemberment, um, then the sort of God that we need is one who knows what will happen in the future, one who knows what's coming. But more than that, we need a God who's in control, a God with power to act. We need a God who controls that future. And who will actually be in charge of it. So while the future is unknown to us, and for that reason uncertain and scary, actually our God has it in his hands. And so as Daniel chapter 2 puts it, we need a God who who is wise, who has wisdom, who knows the secret things of the future, and who has power, who controls the future, who governs it. You see in the chapter actually there are two real high points of praise for God. Um, The first is on the lips of Daniel, and the second is on the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. And the point is that they both actually say exactly the same thing about God, and they work like bookends. So I said the dream wasn't desperately important. Well, it's because these things are here, pointing out what really matters in the chapter, that the dream isn't, no, the dream is important, but is not the main feature. And actually, it's brilliantly summed up in, in verse 20 uh, and following. So Daniel praises God. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Idolatry is bankrupt because at the end of the day, wisdom and power all belong to God. So really the main teaching of the rest of the chapter is that wisdom is in God's hands. So let's look to him. And then power is in God's hands. So let's let's take heart and be hopeful. So wisdom's in God's hands. Uh, Daniel gets his buddies to pray for him, and God wonderfully honours their faith and answers their prayers. So verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. I thank and praise you, verse 23. O God of my fathers, you have given me wisdom and power. You've made, made known to me what we asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. Now, I don't know about you, but actually, quite often, I'm inclined to forget that God actually answers prayers with a yes. You know, you pray for stuff, you pray for stuff, you pray for stuff, and nothing necessarily happens. But he does, and he does it here in spades. I mean, it's quite a prayer to pray, really, isn't it? Daniel um, and his friends uh, get some plug and make a promise that God's never actually promised to keep. They say to the king, yeah, yeah, we'll do it for you. And then they have the audacity to go to God and say, Lord, show us the dream give us what we need to read the king's mind, then give us the wisdom of heaven to interpret it, and Lord, please don't let us get executed. Now, I don't know what you want to call that. Is it faith? Is it desperation? Is it cheek? Is it presumptuousness? Is it just sheer guts? I don't know. Maybe it's all of them. In fact, it probably is. But the point is that God answers the prayer. And surely the fact that God answered their prayer with their mixed bundle of motives and emotions should at least encourage those of us who might be a bit discouraged in our prayer lives, that He might yet answer ours. And I remember one prayer that I prayed several years ago. It was really quite random. You know it's one of those sort off offhand prayers that you pray. Um, I was on some camp with a girl called Carrie, and uh, we got married. No. I was on summer account with a girl called Carrie, and she was going to university to a certain university. Uh, And I knew that a non-Christian friend of mine had a Christian sister who I'd never met before, and she was going to the same university. So I kind of prayed offhand, uh, Lord, I do pray that they might just bump into each other and maybe encourage each other as Christians. Two or three years later, when I go to that university to go and visit Carrie, I find that they're best friends. They're living together, they pray with each other, they go to church together, they go to see you together. Extraordinary. Actually, uh, Sarah is going to be Carrie's bridesmaid in the summer. Um, God knows the future. Wisdom is in God's hands. We can look to him in prayer, we can pray to him, and we can look to him to answer prayer in the way that he sees best. Sometimes he does it in those amazing ways. But come on, let's pray. All wisdom is in God's hands. So if we do want wisdom, we need to seek him for it, after all. There's no point in going nowhere else. We need to know, go to the God who knows the future. Not only because he knows everything, but actually the reason why he knows everything is because he controls everything. In the future, if times change... If seasons change, if kings and regimes change, then actually, it's because in verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Wisdom is in God's hands, so let's look to him. And then, let's move on, shall we? The king asked Daniel, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner, can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And so we get this extraordinary dream of a terrifying, gigantic statue with a head of gold, a body of silver, legs of bronze, and feet of iron. iron. Um, I'm glad some people got that one. Um, This enormous, terrifying statue gets wiped out as God takes an enormous rock and throws it at it. And the rock is the kingdom to end all kingdoms and God himself sets it up. And the mountain, the rock destroys the statue and becomes a mountain and fills the entire earth. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head of the statue and that the rock is God's God's kingdom, God's personal kingdom. And because it's all about God taking kingdoms, taking governments, taking empires and bringing them down and picking them up, it's basically pretty clear that all power is God's. If God can destroy the Soviet Union then God can look after the little things as well. All power is ultimately in God's hands. And actually, Daniel's message for us from that is to say, have hope and take heart. So third and finally, power is in God's hands. So take heart. And this is the chocolate cake moment of the sermon, um, uh, which we'll come to. After all, actually, what does a dream about empires have to do with the worries of our lives? Yep, health, wealth, prosperity, finance, relationships. What does it have to do with our immediate circumstances? Some dream about a king several thousand years ago. I'll explain later. First, though, gallons of ink seem to have been spent trying to decipher this dream. Which empire corresponds to which thing? um, Is the rock, the coming of Christ the first time or the second time? And all of those sorts of questions. And I don't intend to say very much about the dream at all. Um, The only feature that really receives any detailed clear interpretation is the bit that tells us that the gold head is Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah? The silver and the bronze are whisked over verse 30. After you, another kingdom will rise in yours next to the third kingdom. Yep, there's not a lot of detail there. Um, and what's said about the Iron Empire can be interpreted in a number of different ways, and it has. So I'm sure Britain has probably been the Iron Empire. Um, America almost certainly has. Um, I did sort of toy with the idea of perhaps suggesting that George Bush Senior might be the legs of iron that successfully got Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait, and George Bush Jr. is the brittle clay in the feet that you don't by that, do you? No. Um, the point is that we shouldn't get too excited about any particular detailed interpretation. The main point still stands, and at the end of the day, if you were an Old Testament Jew reading this passage, you have to ask yourself, would you care whether you were in the Bronze Age or the Silver Age? And the answer is probably no. What you really care about is that actually there's the rock of the Kingdom of God coming, And it's going to render all these hostile worldly empires that have oppressed you for so long, null and void. God is going to break in and fix everything. And the glorious news of the New Testament is that in it we learn that Jesus Christ is the rock. He came and announced, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And that's basically what verse 44 is getting at. Verse 44 reads, in the time of those kings, that's the iron kings, Um, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. We're not told precisely what's intended by each metal. But that doesn't mean that the main point isn't still true. All power is God's power. And therefore, he's the one who controls and appoints it. Even Nebuchadnezzar is only king because God put him there. Have a look at verse 37. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, You, a king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. Without God, Nebuchadnezzar is nothing. Without God, new labour is nothing. Without God, the Conservative Party is nothing. Without God, the Liberal Democrats are nothing. But the great news is that even though God may well do for reasons that we will never understand or may never understand, even though God may allow all sorts of tyrants and despots to hold power, one day he will sweep them all away and will rule himself and rule perfectly and rule lovingly and rule justly and rule wisely. A rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. That's our hope. Jesus is that rock. His perfect kingdom will one day be the only one left standing. And that's the comfort that this passage really offers. Ultimately, all power is God's power, and so let's take heart. And as Christians, we look forward to that eternal kingdom. Everyone who has already given their lives to Jesus has sided with that rock, which, let's face it, is a small rock at the beginning, compared to the enormous, imposing splendour of the massive statue. But one day, the humble rock and the massive statue, those roles will be reversed, as the world's empires and power structures, structures will one day effectively be smashed to smithereens, And nothing will be compared to the glory of eternity, where God in heaven comes down to live with his people and lovingly rule them. All power is God's power. So let's be hopeful. Let's take heart. But then, don't you think that's a bit of a chocolate cake answer to our worries about work, family, health, relationships, money and loved ones? Apparently the answer was something to do with statues and flying rocks. And I think that's deliberate. You see, we none of us know which empire we're in which bit of the statue, and neither would Daniel's readers, necessarily. In a world which wants to be healthier, prettier, wealthier, richer, uh, better travelled, better housed, and all of that sort of thing, and wants all of that now, immediately, the challenge for us in our sort of world is to keep a bigger perspective, to keep an eternal perspective, and not to get so short-sighted. That's not to belittle our concerns. It's just to try and say, well, let's try and set them in some kind of bigger eternal context. That is, after all, what the Lord's Prayer does, and we're going to say that to close uh, our service this morning. Our daily bread is definitely in there, we all know that, but it does follow the hallowing of God's name and his will being done. Now we can never realise this, so in verse 47 he said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal his mystery. How shall we live in this world with all of our worries and our concerns about politics, about governments, and about all of the nitty-gritty that is our lives? Well, idols aren't any help. Idolatry is bankrupt, so don't trust it. But we don't need idols. We have a God in heaven who has all wisdom and all power. So let's look to him, let's be hopeful, and let's take heart.